My name is Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and we're really glad to see all of you here this evening. We're, we're very excited to have this special exhibit from the photographs from um, Maryland in black and white, and we're happy to have so many friends of Connie here, friends of the Hopkin Press, and friends of the Pratt Library, and one of our board members, Ted Delaplane. Um, uh, some of us here at the Pratt, and I want to say a special thank you to Jack Holmes from the Hopkins Press, who's here selling books outside, and you want to be sure and get one, and Connie will sign it this evening. Um, I also want to say a special thank you to um, Jack Young, who just left, and uh, Jonna Kudlik, Jonna, raise your hand, who are on my staff, and they're the graphic designers who installed the, ex the beautiful exhibit, and this will be on display for... Um, into the fall, so you'll please tell your friends to come back and see it. It's very wonderful, and we're we're very grateful to Connie um, that these are these are images that were uh, reproduced from the original negatives that are in the Library of Congress, correct? And um, and so Connie has given them to the Pratt, and and after this exhibit, they will be in our Maryland department, and we're. We are forever grateful to you for that. So between um, just a little background, and I'm sure Connie's going to tell you a whole lot more, but um, between 1935 and 1943, the U.S. government commissioned 44 photographers to capture American faces along with living and working conditions across the country. And there were 180,000 photographs taken and they're now preserved at the Library of Congress. Um, and Constance Schultz um, presents a selection of these photographs um, um, from the 4,000 4, that were taken here in Maryland from the Eastern Shore to the mountains of Western Maryland. And um, you're going to see a selection of those here in, out here in the hallway. Um, Constance Schultz is a professor emeritus of history at the University of South Carolina, and we are very pleased to present this evening with um, Connie uh, in, in partnership with the Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins University Press, who published the book, and we hope you'll buy one and take one home. So, fun. Well, I apologize. I guess I have to put, can you, is this okay? I can use my professor voice, and so you won't need that, but, but we, will, we will start this way. Well, thank you. I'm glad to see many of you. Um, I have to say there are four of my former students and three of my colleagues in the audience, so I am really pleased. Um, what I would like to do is to sort of explain how I got into this and, and tell you a little bit about the uh, photographic collection from which these came. Um, and so I'm going to read from a script, not because I can't talk extemporaneously, but because if I do, you'll be here till midnight. So I'm going to try to stick to my script so that you'll have a chance to ask some questions. And I need my glasses in order to do that. Well, let me start by telling you a little bit about 
how I came to, f- to discover these photographs and become interested in them and work with them. Um, between the fall of 1971, when my late husband and I and our three small children, we moved to Baltimore in 1971. And between then and 1985, when I was offered the tenure-track position at the University of South Carolina, my family and I lived in Maryland. So I want to start out by saying Maryland is near and dear to my heart. I taught evening and weekend classes for the University of Maryland University College, part-time during the day in history at College Park, one-year replacement at UMBC, And while I was doing all that, I became really interested in visual materials. Um, Increasingly, that interest focused on documentary photography as an important source of information about the American past. I participated with some colleagues and friends in something called the American History Slide Collection, back before there was the internet and teachers could automatically get any picture they wanted from Wikipedia and millions of other sources. But back in 1973, 1974, if you were a teacher and you wanted visual materials, that was hard. So we created the American History Slide Collection. I asked the funders shortly thereafter if they would allow me to create and would be willing to publish what became the History of Maryland Slide Collection. And that still exists. Um, The slides are all at the Maryland State Archives in Annapolis, and there has been talk about digitizing that collection so that teachers can immediately access um, a full range of visual materials. And it was those two projects that brought me to the Great Depression-era photographs. In 1983, with funding from the Maryland Committee for the Humanities, I was able to work with archivists at the McKeldin Library at the University of Maryland, and we put together an exhibit, the WPA in Maryland, based on the discovery of a large collection of negatives made by Maryland WPA project directors. Um, Well, my interest in this era moved with me to South Carolina, and there uh, I created an exhibition called Visitors' Views and a book the South Carolina album, and that book became the start of what has been half of my scholarly career. I've worked ever since on a series of state studies, selecting and editing photographs from what's probably the most famous documentary photography project in the U.S. So, Bust to Boom was a similar book of selected photographs of Kansas, Michigan Remembered is a book of of similar photographs for Michigan. Now, the images in all of these books come from the combined photographic output of a single federal agency that operated, as you've just heard, between 1935 and 43. The larger agency operated under several different names, but always under the direction of a single man, uh, Roy Emerson Stryker. Now, the agency, the little group of photographers, was known to its staff and friends as the historical section, but it's better known today by the first of the two larger agencies in which it was housed, 
um, the Farm Security Administration or FSA. So these photographs are usually called FSA photographs. And you probably think of them as being WPA photographs, but they're not. They're FSA photographs. The section that, that Stryker created moved administratively briefly into the Office of War Information, and so sometimes they're called FSA OWI, but nearly 180,000 black and white images, another 1,500 color transparencies, and they're now in the Prints and Photographs Division at the Library of Congress. Now, oddly enough, none of the phot photographers who came to Maryland ever shot in color. All of the Maryland photographs are in black and white. Well, why is this group of photographs so important? What was the Farm Security Administration? <coughs> who was Roy Stryker? Well, to paraphrase Margaret Bourke-White, you have seen their photographs. Well, I had a slide so you could go look at all of the 180,000 yourselves at the Library of Congress. This is the URL for getting to the collection at the Library of Congress. You've seen their photographs. This is an FSA photograph. Um, migrant mother, although uh, Dorothea Lang titled it um, Destitute Pea Pickers. You've probably seen this Oklahoma Dust Storm by Arthur Rothstein. And you've probably seen this um, Walker Evans of a house in Atlanta, Georgia. And I would say the three most famous of the FSA photographers, Dorothea Lange, uh, Walker Evans, um, uh, who else was I going to add in that? Never came to Maryland, um, oddly enough. The agency for which they worked was originally created as the Resettlement Administration, RA. And it began not as a photographic project, but as a larger New Deal agency created in 1935 to solve the economic crisis of the rural poor during the Great Depression. Now, the RA's first director was a man named Rexford Tugwell. And if you know your New Deal history, Rexford Tugwell was one of the brains trusters. Um, he'd been an agricultural eco economist at Columbia University, and uh, FDR called him in to solve economic uh, agricultural problems. And here we have, I think it's characteristic of Rexford Tugwell that he's the guy in the white suit. Greenbelt, Maryland was one of the RA's first uh, projects. It was designed and built near the nation's capital not to resettle farmers, but to resettle white urban workers from the inner city to the healthy countryside. And so there are lots and lots of very early photographs of Greenbelt in this FSA OWI collection. Um, almost every one of the FSA photographers got sent sometime Frequently, every year, there are photographs of Greenbelt. Well, the RA was controversial. Uh, Tugwell assumed that the nation's poorest farmers couldn't survive on marginal land and that they should be relocated, hence the resettlement administration. 
So he proposed experimenting with such radical ideas as large cooperatively owned and operated farms. He was about 80 years ahead of his time because I understand there are now large cooperatively owned and operated urban farms that provide um, things to provide good food to city markets. But in 1935, that was a pretty radical idea. Um, by 1937, the conservative congressional critics of uh, Roosevelt and of Tugwell and the poor clients who didn't want to be relocated off their land, they liked where they lived. They just wished they would earn a little more money. Um, all of this led to Tugwell's resignation and the transformation of the RA into the Farm Security Administration, which was lodged in the Department of Agriculture. And there it had a very different charge, rehabilitation of poor clients of the FSA. Um, and a note, by the time the FSA was done, dismantled in 1946, they had loaned $1 billion in credit to nearly 900,000 farm families. By 1946, more than half of them had already paid those loans back and by 1950, something like 98% of the farmers who had gotten a loan from the FSA had actually repaid the money. So the larger agency was a success. Well, the historical section was from 37 to 41, 42, lodged in the Farm Security Administration. And in 1941-42, it made another administrative work uh, transition. Uh, the FSA was beginning to wind down because wartime activities in 40 and 41 were bringing prosperity to farmers and the agency was getting pretty severe budget cuts from Congress. So Stryker, who had for the, la the previous two years been taking on um, war work, he called, um, being had, his photographers were hired out by agencies that wanted to document wartime production. Um, and one of Stryker's most important client agencies hiring his photographers was by 1941 called the Office of War Information. And it had two branches. One was the overseas branch, which was preparing propaganda to, to put out in Europe. And the other was the domestic branch which was preparing propaganda for the, at the home front. In 1942, Stryker actually transferred his historic, historical section to the OWI. But very shortly, he realized that OWI was not a very good place. He had by then amassed nearly this 180,000 photographs. And rather than see the photographic collection dismantled and um, sent off wherever, he left government. He transferred the entire 180,000 images to the Library of Congress, and he left and went to work for Standard Oil of New Jersey, but that's a different story. As you've heard, over its lifetime, the historical section employed 44 photographers, uh, but most of the work of the agency was done by 15 men and women, and I'm going to eventually show you their pictures and talk about who they were. 
Because the state of Maryland surrounds the nation's capital where these government agencies were located, 28 of the 44 photographers completed one or more assignments here in Maryland. Because if Stryker needed a photograph for somebody in a hurry, or if he wanted to try out the professional capabilities of somebody who he was thinking of hiring, or the artistic eye of a new staff member, Maryland and its FSA agents were nearby. Uh, and as I said, Greenbelt was visited almost monthly from early 1935 on. Uh, initially, images of Greenbelt were called Housing Project, Berwyn. But uh, most of the photographers that Stryker hired at one time or another photographed Greenbelt. Well, the agency operated in two places. Washington, D.C. headquarters, where Stryker directed operations, darkroom, growing file of photographs, and out in the field in 48 states in Puerto Rico. Headquarters, and you get some sense of how busy he was, supplied photographers with cameras, film, and flashbulbs, and he kept writing them. Um, he would send them uh, sometimes phone calls, but those were expensive, so mostly he was sending telegrams. Take all the photographs you can. Film and flashbulbs are cheap. Getting you where you are was expensive. Just shoot. <laughs> he often gave them detailed general instructions, which he called shooting scripts, uh, and sent them out to document the work of the FSA agents, but also of the broader economic reality of the farms, ranches, and rural projects. During the photographer's travels, Stryker kept in touch with them with these long letters of instruction. Photographers requested and got, all over the country, camera equipment and film. A few of them created temporary dark rooms in hotel bathrooms uh, and developed but didn't print their own prints. Most sent their film back to Washington where an efficient staff in a well-equipped dark room developed film, assigned negative numbers, and um, then sent the photographs back to the photographers in the field. And the photographers, when they were interviewed in the 1960s, said that putting a caption on a photograph was the worst part. Um, except for a few of them who had a wife along who could take notes. Um, they were busy taking photographs. They didn't have very good notes. And then three weeks later, here would come all these proofs, and they would have to write the captions. And by then, they were no longer in Indiana or Maryland or Nebraska. They were somewhere else. So they always said that was the worst part of it. The photographs were pasted on cardboard mounts, and you will see some of those in the photographs I'm showing you that I've photographed from the uh, prints in the Library of Congress's prints and photographs room. Uh, they were placed in the file, and this was known as the file. Um, and more than anything else, they became instant illustrations for newspapers, magazines, book editors, FSA agency heads, agricultural reformers to say, this is what American farmers are doing. Stryker also loaned <coughs> photographs to exhibitions. Uh, there's one in the Museum of Modern Art in 1938 by Walker Evans. In short, they became the visual memory of the Great Depression, both for their own time and for us as later users. 
Um, until 1937, they're all of rural areas. They're almost none of even of small towns. But beginning in 1937, the shooting scripts and Stryker's instructions tell the photographers to show community life. Um, small rural towns are part of the lives of farmers. So, uh, and then uh, increasingly from 1938 on, a few urban centers. So you'll see that in terms of Maryland. Don't see many photographs of, of Baltimore until after 1938. From 1940 on, Stryker subcontracting to the wartime agencies and then the work in the OWI meant that the file then, beginning in 1940, began accumulating hundreds of images documenting the nation's industrial production and the home front wartime activities. Now, you'll notice some of the photographs that I'm including are photographs that are in the book, but just to tease you about the larger Library of Congress collection, I've included a few that aren't in the book. I mean, from 4,000 photographs down to 100 in the book that the editor at Hopkins Press allowed me to have. Um, so I've added a few that are not in the book. As the file at headquarters grew, so too did its use and reputation. Uh, FSI, FSA images were freely available, no charge, uh, no, um, no copyright. And they began to appear widely in newspapers and magazines, in government pamphlets, in posters promoting agency accomplishments, and even in this wonderful giant photographic mural that filled Grand Central Station in New York. And the FSA photographers in lab were amongst the early um, technicians who developed this large-scale photographic reproduction. I'm not going to tell you about Roy Stryker. Here he is with his wife um, when they had moved to Washington, D.C. in 1935. It's in the book. You can read about him. I think he's key to understanding because for eight years, even though he never took a photograph, he directed the work of the photographers. What I'd rather do in the time I have left is to introduce you to a few of the photographers and because the book is organized thematically by regions of Maryland and by time category. And I want to dismantle that organization and begin to talk about a little more about the specific particular photographers because I think the photographer's eye is really important in thinking about what you see when you look at a photograph. And I know at least one person here who teaches art will absolutely agree with that. Well, let me show you a few of the photographers and their photography. Carl Meidens, um, born and educated in Boston, in, born in 1907, died in 2004, so lived almost a century. He studied journalism at Boston University. He was a friend of one of um, the great photographers of his era, Walker Evans, and it's Meidens who early on adopted the then groundbreaking new technology of a 35-millimeter camera that took 35-millimeter film. Um, they were known as, as the small cameras because they were a lot smaller than the great big ones that most photographers used. He initially came to Washington as a photographer for the Suburban Resettlement Administration 
And in 1935, when the historical section was created, he was moved over. So he really predated Roy Stryker and the FSA historical section. He only worked for Stryker for a year, and I only have one of his images of Maryland for you to look at. Because in June of 1936, he became one of the first photographic correspondents to go to work for a brand new magazine called Life. Uh, he remained there until his retirement in 1972, first as a war correspondent in Europe and Pacific. Uh, he was a prisoner of war in the Philippines. Uh, he later covered the Korean and Vietnamese conflicts. Only one from him. Another photographer who only worked a short time for the section in Maryland, worked for a long time for Stryker, but he only took about 20 photographs in Maryland, Russ Lee. Um, born in Illinois, was a chemical engineer. And imagine this, in 1929, he quit his absolutely good job as a chemical engineer in Kansas City as a plant manager, went to the California School of Fine Arts, and then moved to Woodstock. Now, Woodstock, New York was then a very wild, far out um, hippies before there was anything like hippies in upstate New York. Um, he was an artist, but he started taking photographs in order to help his painting, and he was hooked. So um, in 1936, he went to, um, early in 1936, he went to Washington and went to work for Stryker. He left Stryker in 1936, became one of the first photographic correspondents for, for, um, for um, Look. Um, hearing of the photographic, well, I've mixed all this up. He's one of the strongest advocates of the file. He works, he actually, I was reading the wrong thing. He, he works for Stryker for a long time. Um, he is the one who puts into effect uh, photographing small towns. And so, um, I love this one. Uh, if you know the photographic work of Walker Evans, this is very reminiscent of the dead-on center photographic uh, images of buildings that Walker Evans really pioneered, but Russ Lee does a fair amount of it also. Only took 20 photographs in Maryland. Arthur Rothstein, who is shown there with his boss, Roy Stryker, uh, born in 1915, so one of the kids on the project, um, shared with Russ Lee the distinction of having produced the most number of lots or related groups of photographs. Born and educated in New York, he worked for Stryker in uh, New York City while he was an undergraduate at Columbia University. So when Tugwell and Stryker came to Washington, they brought Rothstein down to Washington to set up the photographic lab and work as a photographer. And there he, he too was very much influenced by Walker Evans and Dorothea Lange, and he becomes one of the FSA's key photographers. He began in Greenbelt in 1935, and he was back in Greenbelt every year. Uh, in 1940, he left FSA to work for Look magazine. Um, he later came back and worked for Stryker in the Office of War Information, uh, but after serving in the Army Signal Corps, he became director of photography for Look, and from uh, 1972 to 76, he was the director of photography of 
Parade magazine. So these guys influence things you've seen. But let me show you a bunch of photographs by, by Arthur Rothstein. This is one of my favorites. I love this image of a crab fisherman at Rock Point. But 1936 in uh, Rock Point, Maryland, and the same year he's out in Western Maryland in Garrett County. And while there, he came across an automobile accident on US Route 40. Um, this is one of his iconic photographs of the poor rural people of Garrett County um, in 1937. But 1937, and if you look closely, this family, that's their home. Some of them have dressed for the photographer and some of them either haven't or don't have anything. Some of them have shoes, some of them do not. And one of them has a massive goiter, which gives you some idea of the poverty, both of the people but of the soil. And then back to the eastern shore, so near Cambridge, Maryland, um, picking string beans. And finally, we get Rothstein gets to Baltimore in 1939. Now, and I want to tell a little bit about this. People talk about, there are all of, um, there are all of these photographs. Um, not all of them made it into the file because some of them just weren't very good photographs. I mean, if you've been told to shoot everything you can, film is cheap, flashbulbs are cheap, your time is expensive, shoot. Um, some of them were not worth keeping. And so Stryker killed them. And these are known as the killed images. And there's a nice essay about the killed images on the Library of Congress's site. There are some scholars who think there is some devious reason behind what photographs he killed. And there's a whole book titled Killed, the premise of which is that Stryker did not want any image in the collection that reflected anything having to do with gay, lesbian, homosexuality. I think he killed photos that weren't very good. <laughs> now maybe you can read a larger message in them, but these photographs have given historians and social commentators lots of stuff to work with, and I say more power to them. But this is one of the killed photographs of Baltimore. Well, let me tell you a little bit about John Vachon. Uh, John was another one of the kids, uh, born in 1914. And if you think about it, if he goes to work with Roy, he's just barely 21, 19, 20, 21. They're kids. He's a native of Minnesota, went to work for the historical section as an assistant manager and assistant messenger in May of 36 because he'd wanted to go to Washington to get a degree in Elizabethan poetry at Catholic University, but he had no money, so he had to get a job. How many kids do you know are in that boat? Um, he was paid $90 a month to write the captions supplied by the photographers and then paste them on the 8 by 10 glossy print mount. By the end of the year, he'd met all these cool photographers, and in 1937, he asked Stryker, could he borrow a camera on weekends to shoot street scenes around him in Washington? 
And if you've seen the image out there of the fat butts of the guys sitting in the bleachers watching the Army-Navy football game in Annapolis, um, he was there with his date, but he'd borrowed a camera from the section to go take photographers, and that's one of his photographs. He continued on the staff primarily as a file clerk, and to the end, he knew the file better than anybody, better than Stryker, um, because he created and maintained it. Um, but he began getting his photographs known. Uh, he photographed Greenbelt, of course, in 1937. Uh, and in 1938, Stryker sent him out on an assignment of his very own to uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And from then on, he regularly shot whenever the FSA budget allowed it, he traveled. He became the official junior photographer. And it's his photograph that's the cover photo for my book. Now, it's interesting because Kempton, Maryland, actually is often known as Kempton, West Virginia. It literally, the town straddles. It's a coal mining village. It straddles the state line. Um, and um, I've presented this as a Maryland photograph because all the people are, but the store was actually over the state line in West Virginia. But he also got to see Annapolis. Well, I want to move on because I've promised to give you some time to ask questions. Let me talk to you about a few other of my favorite photographers. Um, Marion Post. And you notice she's there called Marion Post Walcott. Why? She was hired as Marion Post after growing up in New Jersey. Um, her parents divorced and her mother actually was a a volunteer and then a paid secretary for Margaret Sanger, the great um, birth control advocate. Um, but the daughter, Marion Post, received a progressive education at the New School for Social Research in New York. She studied photography and traveled in Europe in 1932. And then, unusual for a woman of her generation, she worked as a freelance photographer became a friend of the photographer-social reformers Paul Strand and Elias Kazin. She worked briefly at the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin where she was the only female photographer. Stryker hired her in 1938. Her first assignment was in mining areas in West Virginia. She later traveled extensively throughout the South, which was very difficult in 38, 39, 40 for uh, a woman alone. She remembered, quote, I had to take pictures of Negroes spending their cotton picking money and I had some difficulty finding a man who was willing to accompany me into the juke or gambling joints. She retired from the section in 1941 after a six week courtship with a man, a diplomat, Leon Walcott. He immediately had her quit her job. He had um, two children. He was widowed, um, a widower. Um, he insisted that her name be changed to Walcott and that every photograph in the file with her name, Marion Post, on it be changed to Marion Post Walcott, and it was done. So all of the photographs by her, although most of them were taken when she was Marion Post, are now 
by Marion Post Walcott. And she actually, for about 40 years, only photographed her children. Uh, Walcott was assigned to the Middle East, and so there, there are in her family files and her archive photo- wonderful color photographs that she took of the places in the Middle East where they were posted. So a couple of her photographs, um, this probably at the same time that she was photographed crawling under the fence in Western Maryland. Um, she was well known for her photographs contrasting the lives of the rich and well-to-do during the Great Depression with the lives of the very poor. So there's a famous series that she did in Florida, but she also did a series here in Maryland of the Maryland Hunt Club, um, side by side with some that she took of very poor um, rural clients. She too got to go to Greenbelt, Maryland. And I'm going to use her to talk a little bit about the work that the FSA photographers hated. Remember I told you the Farm Security Administration is a larger agency which is doing things to help poor rural clients. Okay. One of the things that FSA agents did was to help instruct their poor rural clients on how to be more healthful, how to can vegetables in a healthy way, um, how to dig a safe well, a safe and sanitary well, or in this case, how to have a screen porch so the flies can't get into your cabin. And there are about 50 of these photographs of every single step in the process of taking off the old nasty screen door and building a new one. The photographers hated these assignments, but they were the bread and butter. And here's one that Marion Post had to do um, in 1941 in St. Mary's County in Ridge. Well, a photographer who is rarely seen or heard of, but who I think does really interesting work is Sheldon Dick. How many of you are old enough to remember A.B. Dick mimeograph machines? You remember an A.B. Dick mimeograph machine? Well, Sheldon Dick is the son of the entrepreneur who made a fortune developing the mimeograph machine. He attended Cambridge University. He was kind of a self-taught photographer. But he became, in the 30s, very interested in documenting the conditions of laborers during the Depression. When the great um, strike goes on in Flint, Michigan, he is the only photographer that the striking laborers let into the plant to photograph them (coughs) on strike in the plant. He was introduced to Stryker, who put him on the staff in 1937 because he's a rich playboy. He gets a dollar a year as a staff photographer. And Stryker said Dick was just a nice boy who was a checkbook for the left-wingers. And he thought that Sheldon Dick's uh, photographs of the Shenandoah out-of-work miners was just lousy. But I think that he's a pretty good photographer. Um, Stryker kept him on the payroll at a dollar a year for two years, and in July of 1938, he assigned him to photograph Baltimore's urban neighborhoods. Now, of course, he took the iconic, you've got to, if you go to Baltimore, this is the photograph you have to take. And I'm told that he got this address wrong, that in fact, 
Baltimore and North Avenue do not cross each other, so this building could not be at the corner of Baltimore and North Avenues. But it's a lovely house. <laughs> but most of the time that he was in Baltimore, he was in the African-American neighborhoods and ghettos. And there are a number of his photographs in the book that are uh, very sensitive photographs of, of people in, in the the poor black sections of Baltimore. It's interesting that after the FSA, Sheldon Dick became a filmmaker and he committed suicide in New York. He was in the society pages, three divorces and not very successful career as a filmmaker. He committed suicide in 1950. I don't have a portrait of Arthur Siegel, but he's the one who took all those wonderful photographs of industrial Baltimore during the Second World War, the early years. Siegel is interesting. He was born in Detroit. He's best known as being one of the most innovative contemporary photographic artists of the 1950s. And you probably have some of his um, um, photo, um, he, he does really interesting manipulative work with 35 millimeter color film. But he was also a very gifted uh, photographer of industry, industrial photography. Um, and so I'm sharing a few of these. He, um, when he was in Detroit, he taught in the public schools. He was an advisor to the Chrysler Corporation Camera Club. And in 1940, he invited the relatively unknown photographer Ansel Adams to come to Detroit to teach a class. In, um, and he did a lot of commercial um, freelance photography as an industrial photographer in Detroit between 35 and 43. But in the early 1940s, Stryker called on him to come to Maryland. Um, and so here are some of his photographs of the Bethlehem Fairfield shipyards. Now this one I put in the book, but look. It's a woman. Isn't that neat? I, I like this one because I like, I like the to hell with Hitler on the back of this shirt. But you really need to see this one to know that this is a woman welder out at the Bethlehem Fairfield shipyards. And I'm going to finish with uh, the only one of these photographers I have ever met. This is Jack Delano. And yes, it's spelled like Franklin Delano Roosevelt but Jack pronounced it Delano uh, because he was born Jack of Charov in Kiev, Russia. He immigrated with his parents to Philadelphia as a young boy and there he studied violin and viola at the Curtis Institute Settlement Music School. And then he went on and got a degree at the Pennsylvania uh, Fine Arts, Academy of Fine Arts, and that's where he changed his name to, to Delano. Um, he was in Europe on a music scholarship when he bought his first camera as a tourist. But he became really interested in photography, worked for the Federal Arts Program, photographed coal miners in Pennsylvania, came to, to Roy Stryker's attention. Um, this particular photograph, he was sent on a, on a several month trip on this wonderful railroad, the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe from Chicago all the way to the West Coast and back. 
photographing the importance of the railroad in preparation for World War II. Um, it's interesting, too, um, that when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, Jack, De Jack Delano and his wife Irene were on assignment in Puerto Rico. They are the only photographers who went out of the 48 um, mainland states. Uh, they fell in love with Puerto Rico, and so after the war, they went back. He was one of the founders of the Puerto Rico um, um, educational television station there. He also taught at the Puerto Rico Conservatory of Music, and I had an opportunity to meet him when he spoke as a, as a distinguished opening speaker at the opening of an art exhibit on the New Deal at the South Carolina State Museum in 1990. Lovely man. We talked about violins and violas. And here are some of his photographs of Maryland. I have this one because many of you will know this is now a brew pub, this old hardware store. Some of you, what is the name of it? Some of you may know. If you go, if you go to Hyattsville on Route 1, this is now a big brew pub and you can go in and have a hamburger and a beer. Um, he by then was doing pro-World War II and, and one, of the, one of the propaganda of the years, early years of World War II were we are not a racist society, unlike Hitler, we pay good, we are kind to our minorities, and so there are a number of 40 to 43 photographs that really promote the African-American community as good, middle-class, hard-working, family-oriented religious citizens, um, which wasn't actually totally the case, but this is a photograph that's part of that attempt to create a positive um, image of race relations in the United States in the early 1940s. And I conclude this show really with this because I think uh, it's, and again it's a Jack Delano photograph. The title of this one is simply Funeral of a Merchant Seaman, but one of the other um, photographs nearby is captioned this way merchant marine seamen given a military funeral, bearing the casket of Herman Schweitzer, one of the members of the merchant marine who lost his life in the recent ammunition ship tanker collision off Norfolk. National Maritime Union men march through a Coast Guard color guard as they leave the Schweitzer home at 501 North Monroe Street in Baltimore. This was the first time a military funeral was held for a member of the Merchant Marine. Well, from the beginning, Stryker's historical section had a public relations purpose, and I don't deny that. But I think he himself saw photography as more than propaganda, more than public relations. What came to be known as the file did indeed include images of FSA agents' actions, but it also reflected the reform-mindedness of its director and of many of its photographers. The photographers he hired saw photography as an art form as well as a visual record. And finally, Stryker and people like Russ Lee and Rothstein and Arthur Rothstein 
saw the accumulating file of photos as a record of how people did things, of how they lived their lives, a record of ways of doing and living that we are grateful for because those ways of doing and living are long forgotten by anybody living today. Or maybe some of you remember, but pretty soon there won't be anybody. The influence of these photographers on modern photography is almost incalculable. Um, from the Walker Evans exhibit of images at the Museum of Modern Art in 1938, which helped define documentary photography as an art form, to the development of Life and Look magazines, um, FSA OWVI photographers worked with and provided evidence of the value of new photography technology. They used 35 millimeter miniature cameras to capture spontaneity and intimate portraits. They were among the first to use 35 millimeter color transparency. They concentrated in image content on real people who retained dignity in the face of immense hardship. This is a reunion photo, which I love. Um, within a dozen years, most of those men would be dead, but they live on in the photographs that they took. So thank you very much. I think I've pretty much kept to the 35, 40 minutes I said I'd talk. And I think it's just 8 o'clock. Can we afford about 5 or 10 minutes if people have questions? Okay. Yes, Fred. Well, let's get. I'll get to you. Yes, ma'am. Um, are there any projects that were done similar to this in Utah? In Utah, yes. Okay. Go to the www.loc.gov. Um, let me see if I can get this started over again. Uh, um, do we have the technology guy still here? Let me see if I can get the start of the show. Okay, this is how we'll go. Um, let me show you the... I think we can show you the slide. That's the... There you go. That's the URL. You can go to that website. All of the photographs, 180,000 of them are there. Um, look up Utah. Uh, you can see at the top, there's a place where you just put in a search term. Put in Utah. And the, not long after he left the camp, he moved to Greenbelt. Ah. <laughs> ah. Well, you, there might be pictures of him in Greenbelt. Yeah. So, Sue. Oh, I'm sorry. There was... They are all digitized. Yeah. Um, what the Library of Congress did was that they digitized the negatives. You can also go to the Library of Congress itself, Madison Building in, on Capitol Hill, and you have to get a research card, but they're easy to get, and you can go in and there are banks of file cabinets with the original prints, with the pasted-on captions, organized by subject and by geographic region. So they're kind of hard to find. They're easier to find online, but they're fun to see the original print. I keep ignoring Sue and Fred, who I know. So who wants to go first? Sue? I do, because Sue will always go first. 
Okay. Okay. And, and, and go to PMD. I mean, it's a great place to go and look at this. Look, the images are spectacular. The, the, I've got a, 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 a weird question. I'm interested in the nexus with the OWI. We've got Elmer Rice and the Library of Congress. You also have Archibald McLeish, who's in the he's Library of Congress. Office of Facts and Figures will come in. Is there what information do you have in that in that change? I mean, propaganda is clear, but what what happens is that there was some there was some conflict within the Office of War Information uh-huh. about exactly what the Office of War Information was supposed to be doing, and what now. Mind you, up to 1942, for seven years, nobody has bothered Stryker. He can go do whatever he wants. He can send his photographers wherever wherever they will let them go. And I should say, during World War II, he had a hard time, some of the things, getting the permissions to get into the Bethlehem Fairfield shipyard to take photographs was about a six-month process because it, it was security issues. But once he got permission, I mean, he decided who would go where and what they would do, uh, quite apart from doing the PR work for the agents. Um, OWI is starting to tell him what to photograph, where to go, and and they start saying, well, we're going to take these photographs because we want to use them for, and he and his photographers were very proud of this file. Now, how he got away with yanking the whole set I mean, I, I have not read, there is, there is a good administrative... There, I know about it, and I have looked at it, but for the purposes of these books, I've never gone through them. Oh, oh. I am a bad historian. I, I know the question is there to be asked, somebody else can do that. Sue? Uh, my question uh, has to do with uh, the photographs uh, none of the photographs that I have seen in the exhibit, in your talk, and maybe there's some in the book, I don't know. Uh, but I remember as a very young child going down Route 40 in Maryland and seeing signs that said colored only or white only. Okay. There, I didn't see any of them in the photos. I do not remember whether they're there in Maryland, but I definitely know that they were there in South Carolina. I mean, I have one in my South Carolina book. I can't remember about Maryland, but yes. One, the other thing is that the photographers were quite socially conscious, and so they were careful to document the difference in a number of the places, particularly in South Carolina, you know, colored cattles, and then photographs of the motels in which white people were So well, they, they were aware in Maryland. In, and they were aware in Maryland. I just don't remember whether there's this, this. But, you know, Google Route 40 and Maryland, Google Route 1, because Jack Delano spends, uh, he has about two or three hundred photographs. And it may be with one, thinking that one would be more likely. Any ties with the Afro-American, the Murphy family? That mean, no. That, no. 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 When they're, it depended on the photographer. Like, Sheldon Dick was interested. So he sent the photograph off more neighborhoods. He does it through the iconic, scrubbing the white steps. And then, and I'm, I always picture this tall, good-looking white guy wandering into 
what's, what's the wonderful book um, that you just found on 50 Baltimore? Uh, there's um, something about front stoops in the 50s by Michael Lester. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, Michael Lester's wow. book is a wonderful evocation of black-white relations in Baltimore in the 1950s. Uh, and in the 1930s, Sheldon Dick is going off into these predominantly African-American neighborhoods. Yeah, Ben. What, what was the, uh, the status of uh, racial relations? Was there de jure segregation? Certainly de facto segregation. Um, yeah, well, is some of the images even about uh, African Americans voting? Is that? Well, yes. And, and again, I think that is pure propaganda for the European front. Um, although, uh, and, and what? Um, I'm trying to think, is that out in Frederick, Maryland? I didn't put that one in this slide because it's in the book. But yes, um, Maryland is a middle state, but it's also um, on the Mason-Dixon line and African-American, and the race relations are not good um, in the 30s. In fact, uh, there, there's some interesting stories, not stories, but interesting elements. When the Fair Employment Practices Act goes into effect at the beginning of World War II, and um, Bethlehem Fairfield Shipyards, um, the uh, Willow Run, oh no, that's in Detroit, sorry, other book. Um, the, the, the big um, <coughs> airfield that's out, um, <coughs> they are having to employ African-American workers because there aren't enough workers. There is actually a sit-down strike and nearly a riot when the Fair Employment Practices Act required that African-American workers be treated the same as white workers, and they were, the white workers refused to let African-Americans be in the locker room, that, that they just would not have. Um, and when you look at the photographs, there are, there are some skilled African-American workers in some of them, but much of the photography of African-Americans in this collection from Maryland is a rural eastern shore, um, oyster shuckers um, and canners, tomato pickers, um, rural agricultural workers, um, watermen, African-American watermen in some of the very deeply segregated eastern shore uh, communities. Um, Maryland was a southern state. But it's also fair to say that the middle class, I'm thinking about the Murphy family, the Afro-American is a leader. Oh, yes, So you've got, and then in 42, you get the FBI. You get this yeah, read Michael Lester. Great, yeah. sort of really quick yeah, and easy yeah. uh, read about how important Baltimore was as <coughs> sort of the, the ground from which many of the leaders of the civil rights movement emerged. Um, and, and the very visible and important educated African-American community that was here in Baltimore. Um, but, but yes, it is. Then this is come from, from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. So anybody, anybody else want to ask a question? Yes, The Walker Evans, Let's Now Praise Famous Men, are there any correlations of books or stories that were done yes. over other areas during this period because this book was very revealing about how 
remorseful he felt about what he was doing at times. And mm -hmm. Well, Walker Evans' photographs for Letters Now Crazy Men, many of them, Stryker allowed him to borrow or, or just to take. They are FSA photographs, or, or actually, literally RA, because it was still the, re the resettlement administration. Uh -huh. um, there is a book um, that, that's the, you have seen their faces, that's Margaret Brooke White and her husband, Erskine Caldwell. Um, that's not remorse so much as it is kind of a, see these poor people, that have been heavily criticized for being sort of patronizing um, mm -hmm. um, the poor, but yeah. Um, but James A. G. and Walker Evans worked together on, on that, and it, it's a beautiful book. But many of the photographs he took for Roy Stryker. Not all of them. Right. And wasn't he at one time going to take over Roy Stryker's job? No. Okay. Okay. No, there's no evidence that was ever. He might have thought he would have liked to have done. Because he seemed like he was involved, and he wanted charge in, and wanted to be in charge of everything, and wanted to do everything his way. That's right, and that's why he only worked for Stryker for about a year. Uh -huh. uh, the secretary, he was the bane of the secretary's existence because um, he couldn't be bothered keeping expense accounts. Well, if you're working for the government, you want to be reimbursed for your mileage and your expenses, you have to keep an expense account and submit receipts. Walker Evans couldn't be bothered. He would say, well, I spent so much for this, and he'd write down on some paper and give it to him. Uh -huh. But he was a fabulous, but he didn't do anything about it, which I find really interesting. Yes, anybody else? 